Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for uh, just the privilege to gather together. I miss it when we don't. I thank you for these women who are here. I thank you for what you have already shown us in your word as we've spent time just alone uh, reading, reading these words. Uh, and God, I thank you for the comfort contained in them. I thank you for the challenge contained in them. I thank you for how clearly you outline our mission and our purpose here. And I pray that today as we take these um, next few minutes and we just sit in these words for a while and we seek a better understanding of them, I pray that your spirit would do what your spirit does. and Give us eyes to see what you would have us see and ears to hear and hearts to respond in obedience and submission and surrender to what it is that you reveal in your word today. God, I pray that you would um, just guide my, my words and, and my thoughts as I'm up here. And Lord, we just, um, we pray as we always pray that you would use this time to stir our affections for Jesus, uh, to stir our affections for uh, the church and for the world that you have called us um, to be in and to love and to serve. And uh, to that end, we pray these things. Amen. All right, well, we are nearing the end of the farewell discourse. We've taken our time going through these last words of Jesus to his disciples before his arrest and crucifixion because, I don't know about you, but as I'm reading these, they just have a, they have a gravity to them. They have a gravity to them. And I feel like they're not to be rushed. There's a lot, there's a lot here for us. And so um, intentionally have taken our time. I will remind you uh, the purpose of these words, this farewell discourse is comfort. In fact, a great summary of the entire discourse is there in the very first verse of chapter 14 when Jesus says to his disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. He actually repeats that again at the end of the chapter, woven throughout. He talks about my peace. I give to you my peace. I leave with you. So again and again and again, Jesus is seeking to comfort his disciples. And so far he has comforted them with three anxiety crushing truths. And I just took these straight off the listening guide from, this was three weeks ago now, uh, anxiety crushing truth number one that he has driven home is that through his death and resurrection, Jesus prepares a way for his followers to experience his presence even in his physical absence, which is huge. And he, of course, illustrates this truth with the vine and the branches metaphor. All right, so he's not going to be with them anymore, but he's still going to be with them. And they uh, are to abide in him, and he abides in them. Um, so it's a really, really important truth he's woven throughout this whole discourse. Uh, anxiety crushing truth number two is that Jesus' physical absence will lead to even greater works, which I have to imagine that they were like, no way. There's no way you leaving can lead to greater works than what we've already seen, but it's true. And those greater works are recorded for us in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament and throughout all of church history. The fact that we are here this morning in Brandon, Florida, as a bunch of, I would imagine, there, I'm, there should be, could be a, a, a Jewish woman in here, but a bunch of Gentile Christians studying the book of John is proof of these greater works that Jesus has promised. And then anxiety-crushing truth number three that Jesus has hit home is that the cross is his triumph, not his defeat. So what will look to the naked eye like his utter humiliation is actually his coronation and exaltation. And that's something that we are going to hit hard next week um, as we take a look at John's um, crucifixion narrative, which he's going to weave a lot of that in. So all three of those things I just mentioned continue to be woven in to the end of chapter 15 
into chapter 16, we're going to see a lot of repetition. Um, He kind of circles back to all of these principles over and over and over again. There is one new thing that Jesus introduces at the end of chapter 15 and on into chapter 16, and it is the reality of suffering and persecution that the disciples will experience as a result of following him. So he is going to be very honest, brutally honest with them about what they are going to be facing in the days ahead. So let's go ahead and pick up there, uh, chapter 15, verse 18. And just to give you some context, this follows directly after uh, the vine and the branches metaphor that he's been talking about. All right, so verse 18. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. And by the way, I'm going to read this lengthy section and then we'll back up and we'll, we'll break it apart. All right. Verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. So it all goes back to knowledge of the Father. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. All right, that puzzled me a little bit when I first read it. I thought, well, would it have been better off if Jesus had never come? And should we just like not preach because then people can just be innocent? (laughs) But that is certainly not what he's saying there. It doesn't mean that the world would have been innocent before God if Jesus hadn't come. It means that by coming and speaking to them, Jesus exposed or he brought to the surface what was already there which was their stubborn, willful rejection of light in favor of darkness. So his ministry didn't create the sin of unbelief. It revealed their unbelief, all right? So that's, that's what he's getting at there. Um, all right, picking up in verse 23. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done these works among them, let's see, I lost my place, uh, that no one else has done, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have seen and both hated me and my father. But this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. Verse 26, when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify about me. And that's a really important verse for theologians who are like, really nailing down the doctrine of the Trinity. The Spirit is sent. Jesus is seen as sending the Spirit, but he proceeds from the Father. Not something that we're going to get too caught up in, but just know that that's like a really important verse for like really big-headed theologian people. All right. Uh, Verse 27, you will also, you also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. Moving into chapter 16, I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. But I have told you these things so that when their time comes, you will remember I told them to you. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going away to him who sent me. And not one of you asks where are you going? All right, so this is another place I was like, what? I mean, it's like literally the question they asked that started this entire conversation. (laughs) So what did Jesus mean by that? Well, it could mean a couple things. He could mean that they weren't really asking because they cared about where he was going. They were just kind of, you know, um, that's one explanation. I think a better explanation is that they had asked, but they hadn't asked since. Like Peter and Thomas kind of like were asking and really picking that apart. But, but Jesus then goes on to talk about you're, you're so grieved. So they, they had become so full of sorrow as Jesus continued talking about his departure um, that they kind of, they stopped inquiring. 
And so Jesus is saying, you're not asking anymore, but you know what, I'm going I'm to give you some more information, even, even though you've, you've, you've kind of gotten caught up in it and you're not inquiring anymore. So that's kind of the best we can do with that, but it is it's kind of a puzzling, a puzzling statement because, like, they literally asked that question. <laughs> um, let's see, where, where are, okay, verse 7. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for, okay, verse 6. Yet because I have spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless... I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will not speak on his own. He will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes it from what is mine and will declare it to you. In a little while, you will no longer see me. But again, in a little while, you will see me. And he's talking there about the post-resurrection appearances. He will actually come back to them. They will get to see him. Verse 17, when some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he's telling us? In a little while, you'll not see me. And again, in a little while, you will see me because I'm going to the Father. They said, what is this he is saying? In a little while, we don't know what he's talking about. And I don't know about you, but I have felt that way. I'm reading the Bible. What are you talking about? So we're in good company. (laughs) Verse 19, Jesus knew they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, are you asking one another about what I said? In a little while, you'll not see me again. In a little while, you will see me. Truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And then we have a labor metaphor, which there's actually a lot of those in scripture. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will not ask me anything. Truly I tell you, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be complete. I have spoken these things to you in figures of speech, but a time is coming while I will no longer speak to you in figures, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. On that day, you will ask in my name, and I'm not telling you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And his disciples said, look, now you're speaking plainly and not using any figurative language. I don't know about you, but I read that and I was like, it's not that much clearer to me. But apparently it was a little clearer to them. (laughs) Verse 30, now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. And Jesus responded, do you now believe Indeed, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Verse 33, I have told you these things. Why? So that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. But be courageous. I have conquered the world. All right, so there is a lot there. The very first thing I want to point out, it's on your listening guide in a little oval shape, the bottom left, is the meaning of world in this passage. All right, so John, one of the literary techniques he uses heavily, probably more heavily than any other author of scripture, called dualisms. So complete opposites, light, darkness, life, death. Um, And of course here, of the world, not of the world. All right. And um, it's important that we understand what, that he's, he's not referring here in this passage when he uses world. He's not referring to all of humanity without distinction. 
nor is he referring to all of God's creation without distinction. So we look out the window and we're like, oh, what a beautiful world, right? We're, we're, we're looking at the whole shebang. We're like, that's the world God created. Like, that's not how John is using the word world in this particular passage. And I bring this up because one of the arguments of those who insist on the eternal state of heaven being like way up yonder in the sweet by and by rather than here on a renewed earth is this, is this oppositional language. And they'll say, well, it, it sounds like the world as a whole is bad, bad, bad. And that it's something that we have to like suck it up and endure for a season. But one day we finally get to escape this horrible, awful place and be with Jesus forever somewhere else, right? So that oppositional language can really make, make it feel that way, right? It's particularly the way it's used in the book of John. And if world here meant all of humanity or all of creation without distinction, that would certainly be a valid argument. However, world in this passage is more narrow than that. It means humanity in rebellion against God. He's talking about that aspect of the world that is collectively, has collectively rejected the light in favor of darkness, um, the persistence and unbelief. So when we talk about, maybe we talk about, um, I don't know, a movie or some kind of behavior or language being worldly, and we mean that in a really negative sense, like it's sinful, Right, that's, that's kind of, we're kind of using world like John's using world, right? It's not like, oh, look at the beautiful world out my window, everything. No, it's one slice of it. It's humanity and rebellion against God. That's how, um, that's how it's being used in this passage. Really, really important that we understand that. All right, with that in mind, I want you to look at these two columns that I have given you. I have reality on the left, and then I have also reality on the right. And as I was reading this, I thought, my oh my, do these men get a lot of bad news in this chapter. And I have put all of the bad news in that left-hand column. This is reality, all right? And Jesus just spells it out. He doesn't sugarcoat. He just tells them, let's go through these things. Verse 19, he tells them straight up, the world is gonna hate you just as it has hated me. He tells them in verse 20, they will persecute you. In chapter 16, verse 2, he gets really specific. He says, they will ban you from the synagogues. Hard for us to understand how this would have hit a bunch of devout Jewish men, <laughs> that they would be banned from the synagogue. It was the center not only of their religious life, but it was the center of their social life. It was the center of their world. And so this would have been like a huge, um, a huge, really bad news. Really, really bad news. Um, and then, he, if that's not bad enough, he said, you know what? They might even kill you thinking that they're doing some kind of service for God. So they're going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. You're going to be banned from the synagogues. And oh, by the way, you might die. He continues to harp on the fact that he is going away. We see that in verse 5, and then in verse 16, it says, in a little while, you will no longer see me. He has said that so many times in this whole discourse. And then he is very clear about their emotional response, what it's going to be. Verse 20, he says, you will weep and mourn. You will become sorrowful. He says, you will have sorrow now. Like, just expect it. It's going to be terrible. In verse 28, he tells them, I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And interesting, in verse 32, they, they get this little like spurt of, of faith, renewed faith. Oh, you're speaking clearly now, and now we believe in you. And he's like, do you? Do you believe? Because in a little while, um, some really bad stuff's going to happen and you're not going to be so strong in your faith. You're not going to be so brave. You're actually going to run and hide and scatter to your own homes because you're going to be scared to death of what these people are going to do to you because they're going to hate you just like they've hated me. And then he tells them in verse 33, 
you will, not you might, and not some of you, you, all of you, will have suffering in this world. Now, again, it's hard to put yourself in someone else's shoes, but let's try. Let's try to put ourselves in the shoes of these disciples. You have heard Jesus speak over and over and over again about his kingdom that has come. And the only category that you have for a kingdom is one in which a leader rises up to power, takes the throne through a series of political and military victories. And the leader you have banked your entire life on has just told you that he is leaving, (laughs) that the world will hate you, maybe even kill you, and that your life will be one of suffering and sorrow. That is the reality that Jesus lays out for these men. And I have to think that in the back of their minds, a few of them were like, it's not quite what I signed up for. You know? You ever get into something and like, you know it was the Lord's will. Like you totally knew. You, you, you're like, this is God's will. And you get into it and you're like, eh, not what I expected right? Man, that had to have been so much of their, so much of their experience. Just, they just don't, they don't, nobody had a category for a king like Jesus. People still struggle to have a category for, for a king like Jesus. That is their reality. But, but, is that their only reality? No, no. Thankfully, that's that's not the only reality Jesus lays out for them. It's part of it. It's, uh, those things are actually going to happen. And they're going to actually be hard and sad and terrible. But, but throughout this entire conversation, Jesus lays out other things that are also going to happen. Other things that are also going to be true of their lives as they continue to walk um, in obedience to him and abide in him. So let's take a look at the right-hand column, all right? Also, reality. He tells them at the end of chapter 15, after talking about how they're gonna be hated, he says, but the counselor is gonna come. He's gonna come from the Father, the spirit of truth, thank you and be in you. He says uh, in 16, he says, My, he says, I speak these things to you to keep you from stumbling. So he's, he said these words, these words, that later on he's going to tell them the Holy Spirit's going to bring to your mind, like they're going to keep you standing. They're going to sustain you. They are going to enable you to endure all of these things that are going to come your way. In verse 16, and again, they, had, they, they must have had such a hard time understanding this, but he says, it's actually for your benefit that I go away. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that I go away because then the, the, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, is going to come to you. And then he tells them a little bit of the role of the Holy Spirit in relation to the world, right? So they're not the ones that are going to have to go out into the world and convict the world of sin and unbelief and righteousness. No, the Holy Spirit living in them and working through them is going to be sent out into the world to convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. He continues on about the, in the, the Holy Spirit in verse 13. He calls him the spirit of truth. And he tells his disciples that the spirit of truth is going to guide you into all truth and is even going to declare to you what is to come. And these guys were so puzzled by so many of the things Jesus was saying. I mean, they're so excited. He barely says anything plain and clear, but I get he did a little bit and they're like, yeah, baby, you know, like finally, they're just so ready to understand some of this stuff. And how many times has John, as the narrator, he's, he's kind of, he's told his story and then he's kind of, to the reader, he's like, they're not gonna understand this until later, right? Because the Holy Spirit's gonna grant them understanding and he's gonna grant them insight into the future. And so what a comfort that would have been. Jesus is basically saying, I know you don't understand it all now. Hold on, boys. The Holy Spirit is coming and he's gonna make these things clear to you. So he's told them so many times, you're not going to see me soon. 
But then in verse 16, it says, in a little while, you will see me. And that's a really, they, again, they didn't understand at the time, but that's a really powerful statement about his resurrection. Like, I'm gonna go away. <laughs> he doesn't tell them you're gonna think I'm dead, dead, dead. Uh, but that's what he's saying. I'm gonna go away. In a little while, you're not gonna see me, but then you're gonna see me again. You're gonna see me. And so he's speaking there of his resurrection. He has told them that they're going to be just intensely sorrowful. But in verse 20, he says, but your sorrow is going to turn to joy. Because I'm going to see you again and your hearts are going to rejoice. And, and this is just, I love this. Nobody's going to be able to take that joy from you. Nobody's going to be able to take it from you. They can take your life. They can take you out of the synagogue. They can do a lot to you, but nobody's going to be able to take the joy at having seen my resurrected self away from you. Then he reminds them, and he's mentioned this multiple times in the discourse, but in verse 23, he says, anything you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. And it's interesting, he talks about the Father, and of course we know that Jesus mediates salvation. But did you notice Jesus said, he basically tells them, you're not going to have to go through me to talk to the Father. You just talk to the Father. You just ask the Father in my name, and he's going to hear you, and he's going to respond to you. And so we need a mediator to save us, but we can pray to God. We pray to the Father directly. That's just, that's profound. And the reason is, verse 27, he says, because the Father himself loves you. They knew Jesus loved them. He's like, the Father, the Father himself loves you. Now, he's told them this harrowing thing about how they're going to run and hide and leave him all alone, but he comforts them with the fact, you know what, the Father's not going to leave me alone. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay because the Father's going to stay with me even when you don't. And then verse 33 is so loaded with comfort. He says, in me you may have peace. And remember, he's already told them, the peace I give isn't like the world's peace. The world's peace has to be brokered. Somebody's got to lose out in order for the majority to win out. <laughs> but Jesus isn't, he doesn't give peace like the world's peace. And then the whole thing ends with this beautiful declaration. Be courageous. Why? Because I've conquered the world. Conquered the world. The reason I, you know, I was just, and this whole chart thing just came about as I was just meditating on the passage myself, and I thought, well, let's put all the crummy stuff over here, and let's put all the good stuff over here. And then I was, I was thinking, as I was just looking at it, I thought, oh my goodness, this, I need to get better at this. Like, this is what I need to get in the habit of doing, of acknowledging the pain but dwelling on the promise, right? Of acknowledging what's hard, but holding fast to hope. Both columns are really important. And if we only have the left-hand column, then let's just be honest, nobody wants to be around that person. They're negative, depressing, like a little toxic cloud, moves around. They don't like anything. They don't like anybody. The church is failing. The pastor's failing. The world's a dumpster fire. You know, like everything's terrible. You know, and, and I mean, those, all those things might be true. <laughs> like, there's, there's some terrible things that are real. They're very, very real. Things on a national level, things on an international level, and of course, things we all carry in our personal lives that are heavy and hard. And if we're all left-hand column, we have a problem. But then we can also, especially as Christians, I feel like American Christians are trained to be like all right-hand column. You need to come to church with a smile on your face, and you need to sing all the happy songs. And we're going to talk about like hashtag blessed, too blessed to be stressed. Just pray, read your Bible, everything will be great. Is that true? No. You know what? I think it was about 35 when I realized that you cannot throw a Bible verse and a prayer at everything and it work out. It doesn't, no. <laughs> huh. 
It just doesn't work. And that's why, why we have so much lament in the Bible. I discovered lament when my entire world started to implode because I was given a child with a severe disability. I thought, my, I was, I was a right-hand column girl. Uh, this cannot bear the weight of my real life right now. It can't. And we're all like, happy, peppy, happy songs, happy Jesus. We sent a lot of people up for failure because we got a left-hand column. And it's heavy and it's hard. So we need both. Reality, also reality, right? We do need to acknowledge that we live in a world that is increasingly hostile toward the way of Jesus, where we are deemed evil and dangerous for holding to Jesus' sexual ethic. We live in a world where we have less and less freedom to openly live out and communicate the teachings of Jesus. This is our reality. This is our cultural moment. This is the world we are living in. And I'm praying for revival as much as the next girl, but I don't know that that's going to change, you guys. I think we're on a trajectory here. The pain and heartache that go along with a faithful, lifelong pursuit of Jesus and surrender to his teachings, living as weary exiles in our modern-day Babylon is our reality. It's our reality. But is it our only reality? No, it's not our only reality. All of that is true, but this is also true. I just jotted some things down. Christ is with us and in us. His spirit enables us. His word guides and sustains us. His blood cleanses us. His promises uphold us. And don't forget that promise he made to Peter. I'm gonna build my church and the gates of hell aren't gonna prevail against it, right? Like he meant that. And you get to the end, and it ends well for us. It does. It really does. If you turn your listening guide over at the top there, I have a summary statement. Jesus does not deliver a cute, saccharine, live-your-best-life-now version of discipleship. Not even close. The way of Jesus is riddled with unavoidable suffering, but it was, is, and will always be the one and only path of salvation and soul-deep eternal satisfaction. We've got reality, also reality. And we need to get, we need to get really good at, at putting those two things, holding both, holding both. Well, let's go ahead and move on to the prayer of Jesus recorded in chapter 17. And what I'm going to do here, uh, because I wanted to cover it all, we, we can't go verse by verse. I'm going to read the prayer, and then I've pulled out some observations that I think are, are worth us noting, um, and, and we'll walk through those together. All right, so chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and he looked up to heaven and said... Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that son may glorify you since you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you because I have given them the words that you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. 
Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I maybe in them. All right. Well, let's go ahead and just work through some of these observations. Again, we could spend weeks. There's entire books written on this prayer. It's so loaded with so much. Some things I want to pull out. Number one, Jesus's humiliation and his glorification go hand in hand. We've already seen this. We're going to see it big time next week. Uh, But look at how many times the word glory is mentioned there in verses one through five, right? The time has come, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Um, In verse four, he says, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work. Now glorify me in your presence with that glory I had before I existed. Now what event is gonna happen in Jesus's quote unquote hour? What event is he thinking of? The crucifixion that, of course, is going to be followed by his resurrection. They're a package deal. And so just be really attuned this coming week as you go through that crucifixion narrative. John really highlights. I want you to circle. I don't know if I have you do this in the homework. um, All the references, the word king, the words authority, it's going to be used very ironically It's mainly gonna be the crowd making fun of Jesus, but John is making a point, all right? Because he's really driving home that this moment of Jesus's humiliation is actually, for those that have the eyes to see, the moment of his glorification, all right? So those two things go hand in hand. All right, next observation from this prayer. Uh, Really, really huge, verse three Jesus gives us the only explicit definition of eternal life in the entire New Testament. Now, the New Testament has a lot to say about eternal life. It gives us all kinds of information here and there, but this is the only place in the entire Bible where it says, this is eternal life. It's like you opened a dictionary and you looked up eternal life and now Jesus is gonna tell you what it is. It's a pretty big deal, all right? And he says, this is what it is, that they may know you, the only true God, so we may know the Father, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. All right? So we've talked about this before. You look back at, uh, let's see, chapter 1, verse 18, the end of that prologue. Uh, John had written this. He said, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has revealed him. All right, and we talked way, way, way back at the beginning, how can you know what God is like? Well, 
You can like spend an entire life studying the Bible, which I plan to do, right? Another much more, uh, I think, accessible way to know what God is like, to know the Father, is to know what Jesus is like. He reveals the Father. He reveals the Father. And that's why if you have somebody particularly that's a, a, a newer believer who's seeking, like, I, I don't, what, what is God like? You're like, well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read and reread and reread those books and get to know Jesus and you'll get to know the Father. Uh, also, an important thing, a lot of people don't know this, Christ is not Jesus' last name. All right? It's actually a title. It means anointed one. So when you see that phrase, Jesus Christ, you actually don't see it as much as you might think you would. We see it here. He's Jesus Christ. He's Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the anointed one. Jesus the one that Isaiah wrote about and Jeremiah wrote about and Moses wrote about. Like this one that's been promised. He, he has come. He has come. So this is a really big statement about eternal life that we might know the Father how do we know the Father? We know the Father as we know the Son, all right? Another observation is that the life of Jesus is on display in the lives of his followers, all right? So look at verse 10 again. It says this. Um, oh, I'm in chapter 16. All right, verse 10. It says, everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Now, I kind of read right past that, honestly, the first several times that I read this, until I busted out the message paraphrase, which I always do. I treat it like a commentary, all right? Um, but I, I pulled that out, and this is how you, Eugene Peterson paraphrases what Jesus says here. He says, everything mine is yours and yours is mine, and my life, is on display in them. For I'm no longer gonna be visible in the world, but they will continue in the world. And that phrase, my life is on display in them. That just grabbed me. Because think about that. Think about that. What a profound reality. What an epic calling for Jesus's life to be displayed in my life, in your life, in our lives collectively as a church. And from what I understand, that's pretty much the whole point, right? That's why we're here, that we would be a display. You know, for the longest time, I thought of the fruit of the Spirit as like a checklist of good behaviors. And I had the cute little prints in my kitchen, you know, and I'm like, a little more love sprinkled over here, a little more faithfulness, a little more peace, you know, like just like this checklist. And I've even done Bible studies where they're like, which one are you the weakest at? You know, and you kind of like, I'm going to try really hard to get better at patience. And that's kind of how I always thought of, of the fruits of the Spirit. And then one day it hit me, first of all, it's not fruits of the Spirit, it's fruit, it's one fruit, <laughs> And what is that one fruit? It's Jesus. It's the life of Jesus displayed in us. It's his love and his peace and his joy and his patience and his goodness and his faithfulness and his self-control that as we walk yielded to the spirit who is his spirit, <laughs> then we display his character and his heart to the people that are around us. And that was just a profound, like, aha moment for me. So it's not all love, joy. No, Jesus. Jesus. That Christ be formed in us is the goal of the Christian life. And that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's Christ's character formed in us. So every day we get to wake up, surrender our lives afresh, and show the world what Jesus is like. And so I've been doing a lot of searching this week. It's like, am I showing the world what Jesus is like. Like, it is, it, what kind of display is my life? Because Jesus isn't here physically anymore, but we are. We are an extension. We are actually literally called the body of Christ. <laughs> we are the presence of Jesus in this world. That's huge. So if you're just changing 50 diapers a day, like, what a high calling, right? It's just, it's huge. Huge. All right, next observation. Jesus prays for his followers' protection from the evil one. Did you notice how, 
how, how much Jesus prays for their protection. Just protect them, Lord. And um, I want to connect this back. In verse 15 is where he mentions the evil one, who is Satan. And I want to connect this back to the first mention of Satan. Um, in chapter 8 of the book of John, he's actually speaking to Jews who are pretty uh, hoity-toity proud of themselves. And in chapter 8, verse 43, he says, why don't you understand what I say? Well, I'll tell you why. Because you can't listen to my word. You know why you can't listen to my word? Because you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. And look how he describes the devil here. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. And of course, Jesus is the complete opposite, right? He tells, he tells the truth. The next mention of Satan is in 1430, where Jesus calls him the ruler of the world. We have another reference, similar reference in chapter 16. And I just thought this was a really great opportunity to remind ourselves that there is an evil one. Um, you know, you tend to be on one extreme or the other. You got the people that are like whole hog, spiritual warfare crazies. All right, and I tend to look at that and it, it's just, a lot of it's just a bunch of garbage. And so what I do, my, my gut reaction is to pendulum swing all the way to the other side. And I don't give a second thought about Satan and his demons and his activity in the world, right? And both of those things are equally dangerous, right? <laughs> and so in chapter eight, it always has been and still is lies, usually in the form of half-truths, and that he does have the ability to hurt us, otherwise Jesus would not have prayed for the disciples' protection. And it's important for us to, to realize he's not coming at us with pitchfork, right? He's coming at us with well-sounding ideologies that don't line up with the truth of Scripture, which is why Jesus has so much to say about truth. Did you notice that? He said, protect them, protect them, protect them, protect them from the evil one. And then look at what he says next, verse 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I, was awful, I have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. So here Jesus prays for his followers' sanctification. To sanctify simply means to set apart, to dedicate or consecrate for service to God. Uh, we are in the world, but the world is not our master. The world is not our Lord. The world doesn't determine how we live and what we love. Its values aren't our values. Its priorities aren't our priorities. And this prayer, and some of the things that Jesus said back in chapter 16 is where we get the phrase, be in the world, but not of it. Anybody else raised on that phrase? Be in the world, but not of it. Yeah, it's great. It's great. It's, it's true. Like it's, a good, it's a good, solid way to think. We are sent here. We live here, our homes are here, our lives are here, all by God's design. But our allegiance is where? Not here. It's to King Jesus. And he's called us to live lives that are set apart for God's service. And Jesus very clearly tells us how this is accomplished. It's accomplished through God's words abiding in us. His truth, his truth. His word. Jesus knows the only way to not absorb the world is to stay saturated with God's truth. My favorite little illustration, I think I heard it when I was in like sixth grade, but we all have that like crusty, hard sponge lying in the bottom of our, you know, you keep your cleaning supplies and one day you're just like, eh, you just threw a sponge in there and it's just all shriveled up and it's all dry. Now you put that sponge in some water and it's gonna just suck it all up. <laughs> I remember my grandmother used to buy these sponges at Williams-Sonoma 
and they're like flat, completely dry flat. And you put them in water and they just get really big. And I just loved those things. I was like, that's the coolest thing. I would just make her like explode all her sponges, you know. Um, But if you put a sponge that's already saturated into water, it's not going to, it's not going to absorb much more. Like it's already at its saturation point, right? And that's just, that's my favorite illustration in the whole world of how to be in our world, but not, not absorb its values and not absorb its ideologies. Like we got to go out into the world already saturated with God's truth, right? It's like such a dumb little illustration, so simple, but it, man, because the whole like, monastery convent idea is this not a biblical concept. Like we're supposed to be in the world. <laughs> we're supposed to, we are the presence of Jesus in our world. But we need to not go out into the world all dry, crusty sponges. We need to go out saturated, right? So hopefully that's helpful for you. Um, I kind of ran out of time this week. I was like, man, the last thing I do is I go back through and I add stories and illustrations. I don't have many this week. I'm sorry about that, you guys. I just ran out of time. But I got you the crusty sponge, all right? That's the one I have for you. (laughs) All right, next observation. We see that Jesus prays for his followers' unity. In fact, this is a huge, huge theme in this prayer. And then after that, the, the observation I have after that is that the basis of this unity is our union with Christ that grants us access into the divine community of love. Let's read about it. Verse 20. I pray, excuse me, not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their words. So not just the disciples, but us, us who would come to believe later on. May they all be one as you, Father, are. And look at these pronouns, okay? Are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you've given me so they may be one as we are one. And this is here some more. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be completely one. And then he mentions something similar Uh, down in verse 26, it says, I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the loved you, uh, so the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Whoo, that is a mouthful, right? In me, in you, in us, in them, them and me, me and you, you and them. It's the same language we saw a lot of this, <coughs> excuse me, back in chapter 14. When Jesus was trying to communicate to them, you know, I'm, I'm leaving, but you're still going to be able to experience my presence because I'm, I'm in you and the Father's in me and we're all together in this. We're all together in this. And this is, <laughs> it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around. I've actually done an entire Bible study on this, Union with Christ. I don't know if any of you, some of you are around for that one. What Jesus is saying here is that our connection to him connects us with the Father and with each other in such a way that the love shared within the Trinity, that self-giving, agape love, can become our daily experience. That's just, that's amazing. And I wish I would have thought, I bet there's a really good illustration for that. I need to think of one. Maybe by tomorrow night. And this thing we call the Christian life, it is not a list of rules. It is not a moral code. It is not a self-improvement project. It is at its heart and soul, a fellowship. You say, a well, fellowship with who? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and followers of Jesus. All one all one. The language that Jesus uses here could not be any more relational. There is nothing cold or sterile about this. And that's so precious. 
I mean, I, I, I don't know, I don't know. Like, I, I think of what kind of love must exist between the members of the Godhead. And like, we are invited into that love. I, I mean, I'm still chewing on that. That hit me about five years ago. And I'm still like, whoa, that's, that's amazing, that's wow, right? Last observation from this prayer. That this entire prayer of Jesus is oriented toward the mission of God in the world. We are sent as Jesus was sent. You, you read this prayer, and I read it like so many times this week, just try to really take on the flavor of it. And, and you kind of, what you need to do is you read the passage over and over, and you got to kind of step back, and you got to, okay, what really stands out? And that, that's what stands out. Jesus' priority, what was on his heart was the mission of God in the world, that his people would carry on the work that, that he had accomplished, the work of redemption. There's still work to do. He had finished his task, or is about to. But there's so much more. There's so much more. Verse 18 is really, really, really important. You need to underline it. I don't have it underlined yet. I don't know how that happened, but I'm going to underline it as soon as I'm done here. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. That is the great commission of John's gospel. Right? That, that is the great commission of John. Jesus sees us as sent ones, people on mission, people who live to do the will of the Father just as he lived to do the will of the Father. Regardless of vocation, that is our calling. That's our calling, every single one of us. Our destiny is not to escape this world, but to transform it with the beauty and goodness of the gospel as we continually put Jesus on display in our lives. And that is the whole thrust of this prayer. We don't escape it. We get to do the work of transforming it as we put Jesus on display. That's what he's praying for. And that just makes my life like so much more epic than it actually seems to be, right? Like, I'm going to go home and I'm going to clean some toilets and do some laundry, right? And so are you probably. But what an epic calling to live sent, to live on mission, to live lives that display the beauty of our Savior every single day, wherever we are. So incredible, so incredible. Any questions as we wrap up? All right. We have a lot of ground to cover next week. All right. It's one of those passages that's familiar. Don't let it, don't, don't let yourself think you know it already. Right? That's what I'm trying to train myself to do. Don't think you know this already. There's other stuff in there. So I'm looking forward to it. We'll wrap up. We'll finish strong. All right. I'm going to pray. And then you guys can discuss a little bit. Father, I thank you so much for this reminder. So many things that um, we've, most of us have probably heard before. We've heard that we're sent. We've, you know, we've been to the missions conferences and we've heard the sermons about how we need to you know, go out into the world and we need to, to, to witness and we need to love people. And we need to, but uh, I need the reminders. I need them all the time because I forget and I lose sight of why I'm here and why I exist and what my calling is. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would just continue to just work that into our hearts, that we are the presence of Jesus in this world, and that we get to transform this world as we live out um, the beauty and goodness of, of gospel truths in our lives. And so, Lord, I just uh, I praise you for these things. I pray that we would be women that um, live in, in both columns. We have our reality, and it's hard, but we also have another reality full of promise and hope. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live in the tension of those. 
um, to not slap on some fake smile and pretend like everything's great, but at the same time, not to be drugged down by um, the, the, the hard things that are happening and not to lose sight of hope and promise and the goodness and beauty of what you're doing in our world, even now, even with all that's going on, even with all of the hard things and all of the scary things, Lord, you are at work. This is our Father's world and you are redeeming it right now and you're using us, allowing us to be a part of it. And I just thank you so much for that privilege. May we never lose sight of it. May our passion never grow cold. Continue to stir our affections. And we just, um, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.